Good to see everybody. Um, what a bummer. <laughs> but I know that probably everybody has their little stories of adventure um, from this snowstorm. Um, but I just wanted to share a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm Vicky and I like movies. How many of you guys love movies? Like if you, yeah, I love it. I love movies and probably one of my favorite genres are heist movies, like Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12, right? Like Ocean's 8. I was like sneakers. I was like, that is totally dating myself. Um, Italian job, right? Like I love heist movies because they're so smart, you know, like I like how, you know, you know, you have this mastermind who is thinking 10 steps ahead of everybody else. And you see the reality and you're like, oh man, like they're going to get caught. But then, you know, the reality is actually not as it seems. It actually, oh yeah, Thomas Crown Affair. Um, there is an actual reality that is happening behind what you actually see. And that strategy and that reality is what leads them to victory every single time. And you know, we are in the series of Revelation and his message to the seven churches. And, you know, if you grew up like I did, thinking that Revelation was this really scary book and the idea of apocalypse was like super scary, you know, the reality is when people um, um, were, were reading this letter of Revelation of Jesus Christ, they were like, oh, it just means unveiling. It means that Jesus is pulling back the curtain and saying, let me show you what is actually happening behind the reality that you are experiencing right now. And it was a welcome message because they got to see the inside. They were like, here's the real heist movie. You know, like here's the mastermind who's a hundred steps ahead of everybody else. And I get the inside scoop and in what is happening. And so that is actually the heart and the wonder of revelation of Jesus Christ and this letter that we are going to be sitting in. Now, let me just give a little context about what is happening when the letter is being written. Um, during this time, which, you know, is probably between 92 to 96 AD, um, Domitian is emperor. Now, Domitian is insecure and has a huge need for power. And so what he does is he gives an edict that says that once a year, every person in the Roman Empire has to worship him. Um, and they, what how they do that is they take a pinch of incense and they throw it in the fire and says, Caesar is Lord. Now, you know, he declared himself as the son of God, and he believed that he was sent as as the chosen one. Right. These were the like this was the language that was being used about with Domitian and in a polyistic society. That wasn't a big deal to just add another God to whoever they were already worshiping. But the consequences were dire if they didn't do it. And it is because of this that the Apostle John is writing from the island of Patmos as an 80-year-old, right? He said, you know what? Everybody else thinks it's not a big deal. It's just this throwing of some incense in the fire and saying three words. Who cares? Like, if it's going to save my life, if it is going to, you know, um, not get me in trouble with Caesar, then just do it. It's not a big deal. But John was like, it is a big deal because I only worship the one true God. So because he defied Caesar, he gets exiled and left there to die. Around that time, 40,000 Christians have already been killed. 
and have been dealing with pretty intense persecution of all sorts, right? Whether or not it's martyrdom or prison, loss of jobs, loss of housing. Um, this is the climate of this letter and the time. Now, last week, Dom spoke on the Church of Ephesus, right? Um, and how they lost their first love. Um, and the thing that is nice about Ephesus is that we have context in scripture that talk uh, talks about Ephesus, right? There's a letter to the Ephesians. There's numerous mentionings of them. The second message is to, to church in Smyrna and nowhere else in scripture is Smyrna mentioned, but we do have quite a bit of history on Smyrna. Smyrna of the seven churches is the most favored and the most beautiful. It is the crown of Asia. It is wealthy and it is known to be very loyal to Rome, even before Rome was a superpower. Um, the city motto was Rome, first of all things, they had temples and, and statues honored, honoring Rome. Today, it still stands as the city of Izmir, the third largest city in Turkey. Um, it was also known to be the birthplace of many great thinkers and writers such as Homer. Now, um, in every single message that we've seen, um, there is a certain pattern that we see, right? And I have a slide for this. What, what Jesus first says is, this is who I am. And he has a special characteristic that he brings up for every single church that is relevant to them, right? Um, and then he does, a, so he says, Jesus is speaking the words of, and then he says who he is. And then he says, I know you, right? I know you, I see you, and I know who you are as a church. And then he goes and says, these are the ways that you are embattled. These are the areas of criticism and re repentance that is needed. And then there is the invitation for us to overcome. And then finally, the promise and the reward if we do overcome. So you'll see that in every single message to each of the churches. So first of all, in Smyrna, how does he present himself? He says, I am the first and last who was dead and has come to life. And we see this throughout scripture in Isaiah, like in 44, it says, I am the first and I am the last, and there's no God besides me. He's reminding the Smyrna church and us that our lives are boundaried, not by the decisions of Domitian or the rise and fall of Rome, or even for us, the rise and fall of our country in the United States. Whatever happens in our history or our story, it's all within the boundaries of Jesus. He has the first and last word, and here he stands in the middle of the church with the word that gives us life. Now, why is it important that we see this characteristic of Jesus to Smyrna? So let's read on. In Revelations 2, 8 through 11, I'll bring it up for us. This is what it says, right? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation. Here we say, I know you. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
So hopefully you're hearing the pattern, right? Like, this is what I know of you. This is the concern. This is what I'm inviting you to overcome. And this is the reward when you do. The idea here of, I see your tribulation, right? The tribulation, the word in Greek is thalipsis. And thalipsis means crushing pressure, right? It is like a picture of a boulder on your back, holding you down as you're trying to climb up a hill. And the, and the context with which thalipsis is used, it never is in reference to normal frustrations of a life that we live in just being in a broken world. It is always used in connection with the coming of the kingdom of God. And that makes sense because what did the Christians in Smyrna do to bring on such crushing pressure? Had they done something wrong? No. In fact, the next part of the message is supposed to hold something that Jesus has against the church. Remember, in every single message, there is a part where it's like, and this is what I have against you, right? But there's nothing. There's no part that says, this is what I have against you. There's no word of criticism or correction or a call to repentance because the disciples of Smyrna are doing everything right. They have not left their first love like the Ephesians have. They are passionately faithful to Jesus. They're holding the line against the easy compromises of their time and their city. And because of that, they're coming under thelipsis, crushing pressure. Now, what does that crushing pressure look like for them? Like I said, their context is under Domitian, right? So there is a pressure for them to worship Caesar and give him honor and power by throwing that incense into the fire and saying, Caesar is Lord. But they are also citizens of Smyrna. And so in addition to that, people in Smyrna are like, are you loyal to Rome or not? Right? Are you not only worshiping Caesar once a year, but always giving him allegiance every single day of your life? And when the church in Smyrna says, no, we are not, not only are we not throwing the incense in the fire, we will not give allegiance to him because he is not our God. In Smyrna, where loyalty to Rome is more important than anything else, they are experiencing persecution on numerous fronts from the leaders in Smyrna. But in addition, he talks about those who are Jews and are not because they're the synagogue of Satan. I love that, right? Like there's no mincing of words of what, who, what Jesus thinks is going on here, right? And here's the context for that. Under Roman law, the Jews were exempt from all sacrificial obligations and from military service. And so they knew that at any point that Rome could take away that exemption. They knew that that was a very precarious place that they were in. And so they didn't want to do anything to bring attention to themselves or to get this, the Roman government upset with them. They wanted to show that in every other way, they were loyal to the Roman government. And so when people start seeing Christians who they believe to be part of the Jewish people, which many Christians were actually culturally Jewish, and when their leader is being exiled to Patmos, the Jewish people are like, hey, we're not part of them. Like, we want to separate ourselves from Apostle John. We want to separate ourselves from the Christians. And we're going to go ahead and betray them and inform, like, and show my our loyalty to Rome by informing of Christians who are not worshiping Caesar. And so they betray their own people 
in terms of protecting their own exemption and their own protection with the Roman government. And so they start basically betraying all these Christians who are not worshiping Caesar. And because of that, they're called a synagogue of Satan, right? So they're not only experiencing Thalipsis through the political leaders, but they're also experiencing Thalipsis through hostile leader, religious leaders, right? And you see the physical persecutors. But then the next part, it says, do not fear what you're about to suffer because the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So you're like, okay, well, there's the physical persecutors that we see, but why are we mentioning the devil, right? Jesus is helping the church see that things are not as they seem, right? It's that heist movie pulling of the curtain. The real opposition is spiritual. Behind the escalating violence is the Lord of violence. Behind the growing moral darkness is the Prince of darkness, right? That there is more that's going on than just these physical persecutors that they're seeing here. The real battle is a spiritual one. I love this um, quote from Daryl Johnson. It says this, the ellipsis is the pressure experienced when the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of human beings in rebellion against God. The ellipsis is the pressure experienced along the line where kingdoms clash, along the line where the kingdom of light clashes with the kingdom of darkness, along the line where the reign of justice clashes with the reign of injustice along the line where the rule of life clashes with the rule of death. And don't you feel that, right? That it's not just, oh, well, this is just gun control. We just need to pass greater laws, right? That there is a greater thing that is happening here. There is a bigger evil that is happening, that there's more than just evil and power-hungry dictators. There is a spiritual opposition to the kingdom of light. That is our reality. And when I was looking at this, when I was looking at this quote, I couldn't help but think about um, the Avengers <laughs> because, you know, I'm a movie buff. And I feel like at the climax of every good movie, you see the protagonist at some point being overcome at all sides with evil because the bad guy has more resources or has more armies or has more bad robots or has the rings, you know, like on his hands, right? Like we see that there is a point where who they are is not enough, right? And they're about to be crushed by something greater. And it is at that point, at the lowest low in the darkest dark that there is an opportunity to overcome not because they're going to have reinforcements, right? Like sometimes that is the case and that's amazing. But there's also something inside of them that remembers that there is a greater purpose that they're willing to die for, right? Like that they have an opportunity to save humankind or that they have an opportunity to rescue LA or they have an opportunity to like rise up and really fight against evil if they work together and they're able to take down this evil power that is threatening everything around them, right? Um, it is a purpose and something beyond themselves that they are willing to pay every cost so that it can happen. And I believe that this is what the church in Smyrna is facing, right? Is they are looking at everything around them and they're saying, we are being crushed here. 
we are being crushed here. And the question is, is it worth it? Right? Like, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, yes, it's worth it. And guess what? There's more coming, right? He says, the church is under pressure and there is more coming, but do not be afraid. What we see is that they are choosing to speak when it is easier to be silent. They're choosing to deny Caesar his worship because there is only one God that they're willing to worship, even if it's no big deal and it could save their business, it could save their livelihood, it could save their families, right? They're drawing a line in the sand, even if it costs them everything. And at first, when I was reading this, I was like, I don't know if we can relate to Smyrna because we are not in risk of losing everything just because we proclaim the name of Jesus, right? We don't have to worry about going broke or being thrown in prison or dying for our faith, right? We don't have to worry about the kind of persecution that the church is experiencing or that churches around the world right now are experiencing because of their faith. So how how do we relate here? How do we understand Philipsis in our lives? And yet, when I spend just a few minutes thinking about it, I think we do. I know the pressure for students going into classrooms, feeling the pressure to just blend in and do what everyone else is doing versus standing up for what is the kingdom of God and making that first. I know the persecutions of high school where being different can feel like an unbearable burden. I know that the ellipsis of parents who are trying to raise their kids as Christ followers and the temptation to compromise, to navigate the tricky waters of our society's values with the kingdom, you know what it's like to be the Christians in Smyrna, right? For those of you who work as professionals who seek to work from kingdom principles, when the culture of your work does not do that, that is the ellipsis. You get it. There is a pressure to compromise. There is a pressure to just do what it takes to survive or to not rock the boat or to get ahead. And in the midst of all this, Jesus has one invitation for his beloved church. Do not be afraid because there is more coming. There is more persecution coming. There is more um, people that are going to be thrown into prison. Some of you may die for your faith. He says that right? But do not be afraid. Be faithful unto death, right? Because Jesus is the first and the last. Now, listen, when we make decisions out of fear, our fear rules us. It dictates what matters most. Our society controls us by making us afraid, right? Afraid that if we don't use the right toothbrush, our bad breath will make us unpopular, right? Afraid that if we don't take the right courses or go to the right schools, we will never succeed. Afraid that if we don't post or do post something, it will give people something to judge us or cancel us. Afraid that if we speak the truth, we might be offending someone or at least be misunderstood. Afraid that if someone shares their struggles and we share the goodness and freedom that we have experienced in Jesus, we might lose our friendship or even worse, make it super awkward. Our fears, when it takes us down that rabbit hole, can paralyze us and make something simple into something so complex that it's much easier to just not do anything or just not rock the boat. And what Jesus is saying is, do not be afraid. Do not let our fears determine our decisions. Um, A couple of months ago, 
my son Augie came home and he was super frustrated and he was say, telling me about this hard interaction during recess. Some boy that he's been having issues with had gathered a whole group of people from his class and asked to, for them to raise their hands if they hate Augie. And a number of them raised their hands and Augie was there, right? Like he did it in front of Augie. And Augie felt super frustrated and bummed out. And when he told me, I was furious. I wanted to annihilate this child, right? I wanted to go to the school and I wanted to stomp him out, right? And I don't think that there's any parent that would hear that and maybe not have at least an inkling of that feeling, you know? So I told Augie, stay away from that kid. That kid's no good, right? Like I'm tired of hearing about the things that he is doing to you. Don't try to be friends with you. He's not worth your time. The natural response of my heart was to hate that kid, right? And I wanted Augie to have the permission to hate him too. Then Augie said, but God said to love your enemies. And I just paused at that moment. And I, it almost felt like a one, a reminder from the Lord, right? Like, Hey, remember scripture? Remember God's way, right? Like, remember that there is a different way to deal with this. And again, it's complicated, right? I am not saying that like Augie needs to be friends with this child, right? Like obviously, you know, that does not feel like a really healthy or helpful situation, right? But my theory was caused by my fear, right? My fear that Augie won't have friends, that he will be bullied, that he will be crushed and believe that he is hated and not loved, right? We don't make our best decisions out of fear, we make our best decisions out of love and not just love for ourselves and our most cherished ones, but love for God's people, right? And at moments like that, that is when it gets really hard, right? That's when you feel that crushing the ellipses of whether or not the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness is going to win here, right? In my own heart and what I'm passing down to my kid, Right? Here, Jesus calls his church to be faithful. All throughout Gospels, there is a juxtaposition between fear and faith. Which one will we choose to lead us? Which one will we allow to make our decisions? For this church, it means holding fast to the way of Jesus, even to the death. And finally, there is a promise. The promise to the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In every single message to the churches, there is a different promise because that promise correlates to what that church is experiencing at that time. Why is this the promise? Because Jesus reminds his people that there is more than meets the eye, right? That there is a greater reality at work. There is a greater purpose at work where he sets the boundaries around our lives, not Domitian, not around like some mean kid on the playground, not the Jews, not the spiritual forces attacking his church. There is a long game that we can lose sight of in the midst of smaller battles. And when the church of Smyrna asks, or when we ask, is, it, is this it? Is this worth it? Is this what my life is gonna be all about? Does it matter? Jesus is saying, yes, it does matter. 
It absolutely matters because there is a bigger prize to be won. That is the real thing. So in light of the ellipsis of now, in light of persevering even to death, may you know that there is a greater purpose than just surviving this life by coasting by, by not offending anybody, by just not standing out and putting yourself in the face of danger and persecution. There is a greater goal in all of this. And when you conquer, when you are faithful, you will not be hurt by the second death. John refers to the second death three times in this letter, three other times in this letter, right? The first death, we all die, right? All of us will die the first death. The second death is the final death, eternal expulsion from the the presence of God. Jesus does not promise immunity from the first, but he does promise immunity from the second. Those who overcome fear and keep the faith, they enter into eternal life freedom and joy with God forever. Jesus as the first and last points the church of Smyrna and us to that goal. If we're going to die anyway, let's make it for something good, right? Like we're all going to die at some point. Church of Smyrna, make it worth something, right? But you will never be hurt by the second death. And that is eternity forever. And no one else can touch that. I will have the final word there. Now, as with every message to the churches and every single scripture that we read, the temptation for us is to be able to look at it from an individualistic point of view, right? How am I going to personally apply this? And that is important. I think that we all need to kind of figure out how do we individually apply this in our own experience of um, pressure, right? And suffering. Um, But it is written to a community of people. Each of these messages is written to a church. And so if it was written to the church of Missio, hang on, do not be afraid, be faithful. How do we do that and apply that as a church? That is the question, right? Um, I was reading this parenting book and had this quote that we make better decisions when we're not alone. We make better decisions when we aren't alone. Right. And I can think of a couple of exceptions where that is not the case. But overall, I can see that. Right. Like I can see in my own experience, I can see myself reflected more clearly when I am sharing with someone else. Right. Suddenly I can hear where I'm being defensive or fearful. I can hear how there is another way when just a few minutes ago in my own mind, I felt like there's no other way. I am stuck right? There is something about just sharing with another person and having ourselves reflected to that, that helps us be able to hear a little better, right? Um, And sometimes I am completely blind and I cannot hear anything, right? And it is in those places where a gentle nudging of a friend in love asks me, what is giving this reluctance or bitterness so much power? And what is God inviting me to right now? Or it is In my community, my son saying, but I thought God said, love your enemies, right? We cannot stay faithful and unafraid on our own. There is a battle we need a team for. We need the Avengers. Iron Man even could not do this on his own. So why do we feel like we can do this on our own? This is a spiritual battle that requires a whole community on the front lines doing to get this together arm in arm right? You know, like we need Spider-Man. We need the Guardians of the Galaxy. We need all the franchises of Marvel to come together because this 
the spiritual forces of darkness is real, right? Like we need all of us to do this together. No one is doing this alone, not even Dr. Strangelove, <laughs> right? Um, and so this morning we have an opportunity to have communion together. And I wish that we were in the sanctuary doing this together, sharing in this sacrament. But the sacrament sometimes can feel just like we're eating bread and we're drinking juice, right? But the whole word of communion is that we are communing with Jesus just as he's communing with us. And we are communing with one another just as Jesus is standing in the midst of us, right? That we're not having just this individual interaction with Jesus. He does it not just individually, but as a church, as a whole group of broken people. And it actually was true even in the Last Supper, right? He invited his friends around the table to share a meal. But more than that, to associate and tie himself with us. And later, as he dies on the cross, he does it so that we may be saved to life. He continues to tie and associate himself with us broken people who cannot go to God on our own, who are not able to be unafraid on our own, who are not able to be faithful on our own, right? He dies on the cross so that our shackles towards death may be broken. It is his first death that gives us opportunity and immunity to a second death. And so as we enter into that this morning, I just, I hope that as we take it, it doesn't just feel rote, to us, oh, here's here we are eating bread and dipping it in juice or milk or coffee or whatever it is that you have, but that you would, even in our ways of doing this technolo technologically, that you would understand, these are the people I am standing in the front lines with, and the leader that guides us and leads us in the charge in the spiritual battle is Jesus himself on the horse, unafraid, ready to be faithful to us and fighting to the end. And so this morning, as we enter in, if you haven't gotten your elements yet, you can go ahead and do that. We're going to go ahead and go into another worship time. And when you feel led and when you feel ready, go ahead and take those elements. And I'm just going to pray for us and guide us into that this morning. Okay. Father God, we are so grateful. We're so grateful that you look at the church of Smyrna and you see the crushing pressure under them. And you say, well done. I am standing with you in this. I am fighting for you and, and working on your behalf. And trust me, there is something else that is going on. There is something good that is happening in the midst of it, even when it doesn't feel like anything good is happening. I see you. I am fighting on your behalf. And do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, but be faithful. God, we place our fears before you. We place all the ways that we might be afraid that we might be misunderstood or that we might face persecution at work or that we might lose out on different opportunities or different friendships because we are being faithful to you. God, we, we want to lift our eyes up and see that there is a greater purpose or there is a greater goal here than just being popular or being liked or not being misunderstood. Um, God, would you give us the strength? Would you give us the faith to be able to walk into those places knowing that um, it is worth it? It is worth everything to follow you. So God, as we take time to commune with you, 
but we experience you communing with us and that we are standing in the midst of a whole community of people and even greater than that, your church across the world um, communing together, standing in the front lines with you. We thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to us first. We pray this in your name. Amen.